Welcome to Lit SciPod, the literature and science podcast, with your hosts, me, Dr. Laura Ludke, and Dr. Catherine Charlwood. Tell me a story, Catherine. Are you actually serious? Absolutely. Tell me a story. I mean, I haven't prepared anything for this part of the episode. You mean the part of this episode, which is our introduction to an episode which focuses on the role of narrative in the relationship between literature and science? I know. It's very uncharacteristic of me. Do you have a story prepared? You certainly sound as though you do. Okay, I'll tell a story. Are you sitting comfortably? As comfortably as a human can. Great. Where do you want me to begin? The beginning, the middle, or the end? That's too many options. Uh, Somewhere in between, please. Okay, here it goes. Close your eyes. You are a bear cub waking up one morning to your very first spring. I am a bear cub waking up one morning to my very first spring. It's not the sort of story where you repeat after me. Oh, sorry. Okay, so to recap, you're a bear cub and it's spring. Except you don't know what spring is. Your mother beckons to you in her very best way to follow her outside of the den, in which you have been passing the winter days, again, you don't know what winter is, and nights since you were first born. You did not know there was a world beyond its curved, earthy walls. I've got a question. Yes? Where have I been going to the toilet all winter? I mean... Um, it's not really that kind of story. But now the question is out there. I mean, it is. And now you can't not think about it. I can't. You don't know the answer. Oh, I do, but I try to keep my stories as on point as possible. But now our listeners are curious. Now our listeners probably just want me to get on with the story. (sighs) Fine, get on with the story. Okay, so you follow your mother outside the den, and all of a sudden you're flooded by a panoply of sights, sounds, smells, and feelings, even if you don't know what any of those things are. Your mother senses that this new world is overwhelming, and in her very soft mama bear voice, she explains to you that you have five senses that will allow you to explore this new world, and that each sense, as you learn to use it, will tell you something about your surroundings and your experience of this world. She also explains that there are changes in the natural world, changes called the seasons, and that each season is full of different experiences. The season you were born in was winter. The season that has just begun is spring. You will grow through all the summer and begin to prepare for hibernation in the autumn. Taking all of this new information in, you very cautiously begin to use your sense of smell, of touch, of feel, taste, and hearing to learn the signs of spring. Signs of new plants growing and eventually budding and flowering. Signs of other animals emerging from their hibernation, often with newborns. Signs of animals migrating back into the area and laying their eggs. Signs of warmer weather. Signs of longer days. Signs of the world waking up. What was the point of that story? I mean, not that there has to be a point, but just I I honestly thought you were going to tell me about an amazing archival discovery you've made or something else related to your research. I mean, there's not really a point to the story. I just wanted to share the first story I heard that got me interested in science and then thinking about the natural world in a scientific way. Empiricism for preschoolers, if you will. And I'm not even done yet. There's a coda. So, at the end of the long summer and a somewhat shorter autumn, your mother says to you, as the nights are drawing in, Baby bear, baby bear, in preparation for the winter that is coming, it is vital that you know during this time that we reduce our metabolic rates by 50 to 60% so that we don't have to leave our dens to look for food, which is growing scarcer by the day. Additionally, our body temperature cools and everything in our body slows down, our breathing, our heart rate. 
even our digestive system, you ask? Yes, baby bear, even our digestive system. Ta-da! I like what you did there. Instead of a moral, like with Aesop, you got a fact. But facts are much more palatable, at least to me, when they spring forth from a story rather than by rote learning or in readiness for some kind of test. I want to bring empiricism back to the simpler term that this philosophy relies on, experience. By imagining yourself in the baby bear's shoes, not that baby bears have shoes, um, you start to inhabit the experience. But I wonder, what was the first story you remember being told about science? I will always remember the origins of vaccinations. So a key moment in the history of medicine, because it was told to me like a story. I think I would have been in about year seven, the first year of, of secondary school or high school, and our science teacher started telling us about this man called Edward Jenner and his observations about the deadly disease of smallpox and its resemblance to cowpox uh, in cows. Crucially, milkmaids who had cowpox seemed to be able to resist smallpox. I will also always know the name of the small boy into whose arm Edward Jenner scratched cowpox, James Phipps. I think I was so traumatised by the idea of this violence that his name got etched into my memory, much as the cowpox got etched into his little arm. Anyway, Phipps has a mild reaction to the cowpox now coursing through his body, thanks to the cowpox puss scratched into his arm, but this then protects him against smallpox. Now it's an incredible story and a watershed moment for medicine, though not for medical ethics, but the reason I've kept it with me all these years is because it was presented as a story with distinct characters or actors in Jenna and Phipps. I totally also remember this story being told at school, particularly around the time when we were getting our vaccinations for hepatitis B at school, which would have been during the equivalent of your year seven. It was very canny of our teachers to use this story to consider the history of vaccinations, as well as to indicate, well, it could be worse than getting a consensual jab from your local public health nurse. But wasn't there a milkmaid involved in this story as well? You don't think that Edward Jenner actually dirtied his hands with an infected cow. So having now looked this up, it turns out there are two other names that people associate with the vaccination story. And yes, I am now calling it that. Sarah Nelms was the milkmaid from whose hands Jenner drew the cowpox pus. And Blossom is the name of the cow who infected Sarah. Aww. Blossom's hide now hangs in the St George's Medical School Library, apparently. Although I, I reckon it's in the archives, if I'm honest. I said like a story, but now there's a cow involved? Maybe it's the vaccination pantomime? Are cows a traditional pantomime animal? Yeah. Oh. Uh, okay, I'm really struck by this emphasis on empirical observation, which actually connects both of the stories we've told. What do these stories tell us about science? Or how are we taught about science through story? So good scientists, much like good writers, are attentive observers. And I think that both of our own stories of science stories reveal that those features really appeal to children. I bought one of my godsons, Meredith Hooper's The Pebble in My Pocket, A History of Our Earth, um, a book which tells the narrative of millions of years of geological development, all by tracing the history of just one pebble, an item that probably all of us have come across. Well, geology is particularly good for narratives, right? Very much so, particularly in the 19th century. Indeed, this whole conversation is making me think of Adeline Buckland's novel Science, Fiction and the Invention of 19th Century Geology. Ah, yes, where part one in stories and science and part two is science and stories. Very cunning, that chiasmus. 
Speaking of the reflexive relationship between stories and science, Buckland's article, Thomas Hardy, Provincial Geology and the Material Imagination, reveals how closely the cliffhanger scene from Thomas Hardy's novel, A Pair of Blue Eyes, imitates the retrospect from the sixth edition of Gideon Mantell's Wonders of Geology. Do you want to read them side by side? You're Mantell, I'm Hardy. Or you're 1848 and I'm 1873. Okay. But this is not as exciting as you make out. Such is a plain enunciation of the results of our investigation, but I will embody these inductions in a more impressive form. By employing the metaphor of an Arabian writer and imagining some higher intelligence from another sphere to describe the physical mutations of which he may be supposed to have taken cognizance from the period when the forests of Portland were flourishing to the present time. (gasps) Okay, I'm getting a bit more excited. He's employing a metaphor. He's basically doing my baby bear exercise, but with an Arabian writer. (gasps) Countless ages ere man was created, he might say. I visited these regions of the earth and beheld a beautiful country of vast extent, diversified by hill and dale, with its rivulets, streams, and mighty rivers flowing through fertile plains. Oh, I'm going to skip a little ahead here. And after the lapse of many ages, I again visited the earth and the country with its innumerable dragon forms and its tropical forests. All had disappeared, and an ocean had usurped their place. And its waters teemed with nautili, ammonites, and other cephalopoda, of races now extinct, and innumerable fishes and marine reptiles. And thousands of centuries rolled by, and I returned, and lo, the ocean was gone." and dry land had again appeared, and it was covered with groves and forests, but these were wholly different in character from those of the vanished country of the Iguanodon. And I beheld, quietly browsing, herds of deer of enormous size, or regular size if you're in Canada, and groups of elephants, mastodons, and other herbivorous... herbivorous? Herbivorous? I actually don't know. Animals of colossal magnitude, and I saw in its rivers and marshes the hippotamus, tapir, and rhinoceros, and I heard the roar of the lion and the tiger, and the yell of the hyena and the bear. And uh, he does eventually get to human beings clad in the skin of animals and armed with cubs and spears. I'll have you know. Okay, so in Hardy's novel, Henry Knight is currently hanging off the edge of a cliff. He's locked eyes, ish, with a fossil embedded in the cliff face, and it causes him to go all Gideon. See if you can hear the echoes of Mantell. Time closed up like a fan before him. He saw himself at one extremity of the years, face to face with the beginning and all the intermediate centuries simultaneously. Fierce men clothed in the hides of beasts and carrying for defence and attack huge clubs and pointed spears rose from the rock like the phantoms before the doomed Macbeth. They lived in hollows, woods and mud huts, perhaps in caves of the neighbouring rocks. Behind them stood an earlier band. No man was there. Huge elephantine forms, the mastodon, the hippopotamus, the tapir, antelopes of monstrous size, the megarithium, the mylodon, all, for the moment, in juxtaposition. Further back and overlapped by these were perched huge-billed birds and swinish creatures as large as horses. Still more shadowy were the sinister crocodilian outlines, alligators and other uncouth shapes, culminating in the colossal lizard, the Iguanodon. Folded behind were dragon forms and clouds of flying reptiles. Still underneath were fishy beings of lower development, and so on, till the lifetime scenes of the fossil confronting him were a present and modern condition of things. 
Aside from the Aquanodon, I think both of these excerpts have a lot in common, particularly the long-range view, almost an aerial view to the history of this. And we'll get back to this idea of deep time and our ability to perceive it. And if you thought that narrativizing geology was solely the domain of professional geologists, then I give you Evord E. Davis's lecture text from November 1911, when he presented The Geology of the Neighbourhood to the Penmaimaur Mutual Improvement Society. Wait, we've heard about them. I was hoping you wouldn't notice. <laughs> the story of the rocks is the science geology. The chapter in that serial, which is here daily open for us to gaze upon and to read, is the Silurian chapter, for the rocks of the neighbourhood belong to that division of the geological series. It is one of the first chapters in the geological story. How satisfying an opening to an evening lecture is that? I would want to hear about the second chapter. You know, I'm beginning to wonder if we don't include a sufficient number of Welsh archival anecdotes in our podcast. Sarcasm? And if talk of Thomas Hardy, an obscure Welsh geologist, hasn't whetted your palate enough, here's another mind-blowing research finding from Michael R. Page's 2012 monograph, The Literary Imagination from Erasmus Darwin to H.G. Wells, colon, Science, Evolution, and Ecology. One of the most consequential instances of the transit between literature and science Page identifies is how the discovery of deep time facilitated an awareness of an equally vast future. In science, this, quote, enlarged vision of time then facilitated new vistas for the imagination that correspond with emerging evolutionary perspectives, end quote, because evolution necessitates a geological understanding of time separate in its scale from human history. In literature, this has created the possibility of science fiction and encouraged the exploration of evolutionary ideas through narrative form. This is particularly the case when in chapters 1 and 2, Page reconstructs the influence of Erasmus Darwin's early evolutionary ideas in the poetry of William Wordsworth and Percy Bysshe Shelley. And in chapter 3, where he traces the romantic poet's familiarity with science and nature through Mary Shelley's novels Frankenstein and the Last Man, and identifies the shift from synthetic to a reactionary engagement with science and literature that occurred in the 1830s, which of course predates our examples from Mantell and Hardy. And Davies. Oh yes, of course. So it would seem that narrative storytelling and science are at the heart of a lot of work being done in literature and science, as we explore with our interview guest, Dr. Will Aberley. But it's also worth noting that there's a current European Research Council funded... Hooray for European Research Funding! Please let us always be able to partake of it. Indeed, an ERC-funded project called Narrative Science at the London School of Economics, headed by Principal Investigator Professor Mary S. Morgan. Narrative Science are doing lots of interesting work in this area, including the interdisciplinary workshop Narrative Science in Techno-Environments, Integrating History of Science with Environmental History and Humanities on July 18th and 19th, 2019. Now that project is not to be confused with Narrative Science, the Chicago-based artificial technology company who promised to, quote, transform data into plain English stories using their natural language generation technology. I mean, it's interesting that we're now turning to AI to resolve issues of communication, and that the aim is to produce plain English stories. I know. Keep that in mind, listeners, as we talk language and science, the language of science, and broader aspects of the biological sciences with Dr. Will Aberley. (laughs) 
We are delighted to have with us Dr. Will Aberlin, a senior lecturer in Victorian literature at the University of Sussex. He specializes in intersections between literature and science, particularly in the 19th and early 20th centuries. He is the author of English Fiction and the Evolution of Language, 1850-1914, with Cambridge University Press in 2015. And his forthcoming book is Mimicry and Display in Victorian Literary Culture, Nature, Science, and the 19th Century Imagination, which comes out of his research as a Leverhulme Trust Early Career Fellow. He also edited the recent collection Underwater Worlds, Submerged Visions in Science and Culture. Having worked as a journalist in his previous career, Will was a BBC New Generation thinker in 2014, and has appeared numerous times on UK radio, turning his research into essays, documentaries, and discussion segments. He is currently a visiting fellow at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development in Berlin. Although we're actually in Egham. Um, Will, hello! <laughs> we're delighted to have you with us here at Looks Like It's lovely to be here in Egham, yes. <laughs> uh, so first of all, what we're going to ask you to do is to complete the B33 challenge. Can you summarise your research for us broadly, then in three points, and finally in three words? Okay, so broadly, first of all, so I said, okay, because um, I've, I've done a number of different projects, but um, I, I guess they all come together around the overlap or um, opposition between science and the humanities, and particularly science and literature, uh, and they all explore um, in different ways the way in which personal subjectivity gets mixed up or it gets or people try to exclude it from scientific knowledge because my first book was about um, theories of the evolution of language and the way that there was sort of this traffic between um, theories of, of in, in philology and um, evolutionary theories about about language and uh, popular fiction which imagined language change on large and big scales uh, and then my, um, my postdoc project, which is for my forthcoming book, was all about the ways in which um, the organic world could be constituted by signs and interpretations uh, in, in which non-human agents could be interpreters and could be bearers of, of signs. You know, so how, how thinking about the biolog bio biology semiotically uh, became this big thing in 19th century science and it had these these big cultural reverberations and intellectual reverberations that we're still kind of coming to terms with now and then my current projects are about the history of nature writing in Britain and uh, about the emotions of scientists and naturalists in the 19th century and again I'm interested there in sort of in subjectivity as I mentioned and also responses to the environment and the way in which the environment can, can become semiotic. Um, so to, to narrow it down to three points, let me see. Okay, so number one, I examine how scientific authority has been constructed through history and the tensions involved in that construction of authority. Number two, I'm interested in semiosis as a problem for science. What I mean by semiosis is simply meaning. Uh, and the sort of the transmission of meaning, the construction of meaning through signs, through language. So you could, you could talk about language, but semiosis is sort of a, a larger term than that. It encompasses more than just language. So I find that 
useful. So I'm, you know, like I've been looking at animal camouflage and, and protective mimicry where, where um, various organisms pretend to be things they're not to deceive other organisms, you know, or alternatively display, sexual selection display, you know, and, uh, or uh, warning coloration where they're sort of saying, keep away from me, I'm dangerous, you know. All of that, it's kind of like this idea that the, the, the non-human world um, makes meanings and that those meanings could have real material effects I find really interesting. Historically science has always had a problem with with language and with rhetoric and has wanted to kind of get past it and see you know no the truth is separate from from this stuff so. But science exists within language. Science exactly exactly but I think that scientific culture a lot of the time tries to kind of to hide from that fact mm -hmm. and pretend that it's um you know, this is an annoying sort of um, distraction that we have, to, we, have to, we have to pierce through somehow and then get to the reality on the other side. So, as I say, I'm interested in semiosis as a problem for science, um, which, which conflicts with the goal of producing certain objective knowledge and of reducing nature to fixed laws. Because as anybody who's, who's studied language or, you know, meaning in the humanities will know, um, signs and meaning are anything but stable, anything but certain. They're all, meaning is always in play and it's always very slippery. Um, and number three, my research is often concerned with the, uh, the modern separation of materialist scientific knowledge from moral values and the anxieties that this separation creates. Um, a lot of the people that I look at are sort of complaining about how modern science impoverishes the truth, making it just about facts and about things that you can prove you know with absolute certainty and, and in order to get that sort of that level of precision you have to kind of um, leave morality out of the equation ultimately uh, and I find that quite an interesting thing how we um, we put science on a pedestal so much in our culture and it's sort of it, it, it's so unquestionable but on the other hand it, it can't really tell us what to do you know? <laughs> it can't tell us what's right or what we should do you know um, so I find that a really interesting problem. So the th oh, the th three words. Three words, right? Okay. So here we go: <laughs> authority, semiosis, morality. That is quite the. Uh... <laughs> they, they seem like really huge, abstract concepts, mm. and and ones that people might not obviously associate with literary studies. But mm. of course, that's often the case: is that within literary studies are all these larger questions about the natural world and literature. Yes, I mean, I think that uh, I've always been interested in the history of ideas, really. And the history of ideas is something that's sort of, it's a bit out, a bit out of fashion now. It's sort of, um, a lot of people sort of say, well, you can't really talk about ideas as these abstract things in history. It's all about discourse. It's all about sort of material conditions and institutions and, uh, you know, the discourse that they create. And uh, I can see the point of that critique, but I still have a soft spot for this idea of, of ideas, the idea of ideas. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's what really sort of fascinates me, really, the big ideas and how, you know, literature is a certain, a certain vehicle for exploring them and for problematising them. So, first of all, um, can you tell us how you got into the field of literature and science or at what point you realised you were in that field? So what was that pathway for you? So um, back in uh, 2008, I was working in a, a commercial local radio station in Essex and um, I had this vague idea that I wanted to do a PhD 
And ever since I'd been an undergraduate in university, um, I'd read H.G. Wells's novel, um, The Island of Dr. Moreau, and there's one passage in it where the narrator witnesses these um, beast people, because the novel, if you haven't read it, is about these experiments that are done on um, these animals to sort of try and turn them into humans, try and create humans out of other organic material, if you like. And then it all goes wrong, and uh, these, these beings sort of degenerate back into their animal forms. And there was this passage in it that just really stuck with me, where the narrator is describing this degeneration process, and he, he describes how these animal people, the beast folk, as he calls them, lose the capacity for language. And, uh, and he says, imagine words, once clear-cut and precise, sort of losing their uh, clear outline, losing their definition and just melting into lumps of sound. And I just found that so interesting. I think because of the sort of the way in which it sort of, it shows how language is this very abstract thing, but it's also something that's purely material, it's bodily, you know, and a lot of the time animals have been represented as not having language, as being dumb and just being bodies that don't have souls, that don't have this abstract life, you know. So when research in recent years has been done, which has suggested that they do, you know, use signs to an extent, that meaning does feature in their, their social activity with each other, that really kind of complicates things and is quite mind-bending for us because we're so used to thinking that way. Um, so I think it just... It just, it just um, it just touches on all these, these ideas that I was really interested in. And I could never let go of that passage in that novel. And I think kind of on the basis of that, I had this idea for doing my PhD, which was about theories of the evolution of language in the 19th century and how that history uh, intersected with, with popular fiction. And, uh, and I got more and more interested in sort of literature and science and found out more about it through that. So that, that led me on to the next project, which was also featuring sort of ideas about signs and meaning um, in biology. Uh, but that was focusing on, on camouflage and animal mimicry. Our previous guests have been inspired in their research by physics or, or technology. Would it be fair to say that it is primarily the biological sciences which have motivated the bulk of your research? And if so, why do you think that's the case? Why are they so fruitful for the field of literature and science? And I know your more recent work has begun touching on things like geology and other natural studies, but what in particular about not hard sciences? Well, I mean, rocks can be hard, but... Especially when they hit you. Yeah. Mm. I'll duck. But what, what in particular about the biological sciences makes them so fruitful for literature and science research? I think it's the historical angle, it's the, it's the natural history, you know, it, it go, all goes back to Gillian Beer's work, you know, um, looking, thinking about narrative and thinking about how science uses narrative, so when you're telling a story, um, I think there's just so many possibilities for literary critics and people in the humanities to sort of creep in there and find things to say and find things to contribute, and in the same way, because natural history is so, there's so much guessing and so much sort of conjecture involved in that in, and, and so much imagination it's so inherently imaginative I'm not saying other other sciences aren't as well but in some ways I think that imaginative element is more accessible maybe or it was for me because of the things that I was interested in for me I mean I'm just really interested in obviously coming from a literary humanities background in as I said meaning and ideas and discourse and things like that and I want to kind of show how 
life as a material thing can't be separated from that. And I think we have this very artificial distinction where we, you know, and it, it's, not, it, it's not helped, obviously, by the two cultures and the way that sort of the universities have developed, you know, where they, they have their fiefdoms and we think of the humanities and we think of the hard sciences. So therefore, it must be that you, you have culture and you have nature and uh, they're two separate things. And so many, so many scholars have completely demolished that idea and shown how, um, how the two can't be separated. And yet... And yet, still, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, we, we, we seem to be, you know, institutionally sort of completely um, sold on that idea. Well, then one of the ways in with this, I think, for your work is language, because I'm fascinated in your first book by this idea of, of studying language. So it's the object of study, but it is also you know, the medium, the medium. through yeah. which you, you can kind of learn any of these mm. ideas. Mm. So what for you is the sort of tension in, in science over language and its usage because I think obviously a lot of our listeners if you're talking about the science of language might think of linguistics right rather mm, than moving mm. into that historical angle of the evolution of language. Science often hates language and it's annoyed by it so you go all the way back to the founding of the Royal Society in the 1600s you have people like um, Thomas Spratt who writes this uh, wonderful name <laughs> who writes this essay about how um, they, they need to reform the language which is used in the sort of the essays that they're writing and in the transactions that they're producing because, um, you know, there's all this rhetoric and you just get rid of that and just use as many words as there are things and just be plain and transparent. And that is always the ideal. Um, there's always this sort of somewhat naive idea of like a good plain style in a lot of scientific culture where just say it like it is just cut out the flim flam and the, the waffle and just you know no, no more of these uh, these veils concealing things and just 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 um, transparency which obviously is a complete sort of naive illusion but um it's such a powerful one. And yet when we look at scientific writing today, um, there's so much rhetoric that is trying to distance, you know, the people doing the research from the research itself, you know, think of passive language constructions, mm. think of all the jargon that exists. It's so specialized that it is the opposite of what Thomas Spratt hopes for in, in, in many ways. I suppose it is, yeah. But I mean, I suppose that the, the way that today it's very, all of the, every, every sub- discipline and field will have developed its, its technical terminology that it uses and that's how it sort of tries to hide from problems of language being like we're, we're talking about these hyper hyper specific things but the problem there is it means that you kind of like you have a great deal of precision in your particular area but then when you try and sort of zoom out from there and talk more in general then you know you haven't really solved any of the problems you're still dealing with discourse you're still dealing with the sort of the the, the slipperiness of meaning yes yeah, so much scientific authority is about claiming to be above all of that and claiming to be above perspectives and culture and ideology but how interesting this idea of, of saying it like it is, because of course that's not necessarily what nature is doing, right? I mean, your whole project mm, on, on mimicry mm, yeah, and kind of yeah. disguising, mm. um, you know, so why shouldn't language also disguise through metaphor, if, if it, particularly if it wants to represent nature as it is? That's what I love about this, yeah, how, how nature itself is rhetorical, how appearances matter. You know, it's not just like you have appearance and then you have reality. It's like appearances have real effects on reality. There's um, this artist who produced a series of, of fascinating photographs of um, birds. Basically, it's their decaying bodies that are sort of on, on, on beaches that he found and photographed. And um, as their bodies decay, you see all of the plastic human products, which they've obviously ingested, 
which was concealed. Yeah, but now it's now now you can see through it because they're sort of like the the, the flesh has 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 worn away, um, and they're all really brightly coloured. So obviously these birds are seeing these things in the sea and going down and eating them, and, and ultimately it's killing them. So that's a sort of it's an unintended consequence of human activity where we haven't considered how these non-human life forms are perceivers and interpreters like we are. So it's not just a case of, you know, our, our impact on the environment being a material one. It's also a sort of a semiotic one. It also changes the sort of the, the semiosphere, in inverted commas, the, uh, the, the, the uh, network of, of signs which every uh, living being exists in. There was this German-Estonian biologist and uh, wonderful crazy theorist in the early 20th century called Jakob von Uxkull, who came up with these arguments about how um, every, every organism, basically, um, we have to understand its, its subjective experience of the world because that has a real impact on uh, not only itself but its relations with everything else. So the example he uses is the tick, which lives on the blood of other creatures. Now, even the tick, you can make this model of communication, you know, sort of inputs and outputs and senders and receivers to understand how the tick is a message sender and receiver and interpreter. It's always been this interesting sort of niche subject in biology, which a lot of other biologists, I think, have been sort of a bit, a bit disturbed by, and like a, a, a road they don't want to go down. And um, I think Richard Dawkins in the 70s, he published some essays sort of talking about animal signals. And there was this, there's always this idea of, no, let's talk about signals rather than signs, because if we call them signals, then we can control them a bit more and make them a bit more fixed and ignore all of these problems of the slipperiness of meaning and, and the sort of the arbitrariness of it. And one, one of the interesting things about the 20th century is that there are a number of authors trying to explore these problems alongside scientists. T.H. White, who writes The Once and Future King, he has, um, you know, the boy Arthur trying to imagine, you know, Merlin makes him imagine what it's like to be a bird so that before he can be the bird, he has to imagine every aspect of his existence and then he can transform into it. Mm-hmm. But he can't, he can't do that until he, he has worked out what every feather will do. And it's sort of an ontological way of imagining a relationship between man and nature. Mm. But then on the other hand, um, you have someone like A.S. Byatt in um, Morphoa Eugenesis, which is one of the short stories in Angels and Insects, yeah, yeah. where signs, there are signs in the natural world that are being interpreted um, wrongly. But at the same time, you know, there's this side story in which the story of the ants that the family is discovering has to be written as a narrative in yeah. order for it to be, you know, a good, a good biological mm. study. Yeah, and there's, there, there are moments in, in that story where you have the romantic love interest who is associated with all these butterflies and is sort of cut, is surrounded by them. And it's sort of, it's, it's quite obvious there's this sort of sexual selection kind of theme yeah. coming out. You know, it's interesting how this is cropped up as a theme in neo-Victorian fiction. Yeah. So in John Fowles' The French Lieutenant's Woman, where he talks about cryptic coloration, which is actually an anachronism because people didn't start using the phrase cryptic coloration until the 20th century, but never mind. But he's talking <laughs> about Victorians and it's sort of like a very eminent Victorian's view. Of, of Victorians saying uh, how they are putting on, you know, putting on a display, pretending to be things they're not, and that they didn't even question it—that this was sort of an instinctive thing. You find people in the 19th century who sort of who make that connection, and in a way, it's sort of it's more telling about how we think of the Victorians rather than how they were themselves. Yeah. Well, so there's us looking back, but what about the 19th century sort of looking forward to what they might be able to understand? Um, as a Hardy scholar, I have to ask you about Hardy because he crops yeah. up through 
all well all of your work as I have seen it so far <laughs> and if you're now working on geology I can only imagine that he's <laughs> gonna have to weave his way in there somewhere. I suppose so. You were saying earlier about how much of science not relies on but requires the imagination or invites the imagination in and I think that's something that maybe we don't see or we don't accept as much in our current scientific culture whereas in the 19th century you can see that people are having these big ideas and starting maybe to see this in nature and then imagine well what would this mean if we sort of saw a larger template and then that that weaving back into uh, you know, the poetry of Hardy. So you get poems like Heredity, and yeah. he's dealing with actually sort of contemporary mm. evolutionary theory or ideas around, you know, and okay, they might be pretty wrong, yeah, but yeah. It's, it's right there in the poetry because it starts to fire the imagination as well. And I'm wondering if, especially with your ideas of the uncanny, and when mimicry becomes uncanny and doppelgangers. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But how does the imagination play with science in the 19th century? I think that it has to find these sort of these nooks where there, are, there is the unknown still, mm. uh, where there are kind of like, okay, so we've discovered all this stuff, but what are the new mysteries that these discoveries have created that we were not even aware of before? Um, and I'm looking, I've been looking recently at this guy, uh, this, the geologist Hugh Miller, who was a great sort of popularizer of geology in the 1840s and 50s. And um, he's making these very bold claims to, that science and poetry are one and science is like the poetry of, of the physical, if you like. Um, because he's always saying that as science seems to disenchant, it only creates more enchantment and sort of more things to, to wonder at, you know, and to, to not know. The point of imagination, isn't it? It's sort of like you have to, some, something has to be out of our reach for, you, for your imagination to have some utility. You know, it has to be like, okay, so we've settled this, we've reduced this to sort of precise mathematical certainty, um, but what about, what about the other stuff that's behind it? You know, it's, it's, I think there's always that dynamic. And maybe there are just, you know, like cultural changes where people become more or less interested in what they don't know and I think sometimes it's a question of ignoring stuff so protective mimicry and camouflage it's interesting when you look at the history of it how it sort of went in and out of fashion um, and it was in the early 20th century it spent a lot of time being on the margins well except for in military yeah well that's a really interesting point yeah how it was uh, how the development of military camouflage was influenced by this pre-existing science sort of this biology of animal concealment but at the same time there was a lot of uncertainty it was, it was all part of the eclipse of darwinism really of sort of like okay what exactly is this thing that we think is going on here is it really natural selection at work or is it more just other things like sort of lamarckian evolution where these resemblances are developing just because of some inherent energy that's driving them, you know, and alternative things. So there was, it's fascinating how the, the, the arguments people would have, like when you have an insect that resembles a leaf, they would argue it's too perfect to have been formed by natural selection. It must have been pseudo-theological sort of design thing going on here. I'm just thinking about <laughs> imagination. When you say like that's too good not to have been designed, it's like that is the work of imagination that has to have been imagined. It can't have just been generated out of nowhere. That there's sort of this want for there to be a kind of human mind behind it designing something. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the most perfect thing we can imagine and look, that's why it's come to fruition in nature. I think this is sort of part of the semiosis thing that I'm interested in because I mean, like the sort of the modern evolutionary synthesis that the selfish gene, you know, is, is, is embedded in and so much of sort of scientific naturalism revolves around the pointlessness of existence and the lack of purpose and I think particularly people in the humanities have often loved 
Lamarckian evolution and they've loved sort of like this idea of sort of nature having a purposive sort of mimesis behind it because it, yeah, it, it's got that sort of, it, it, it feeds into this natural theological idea of a sort of a designer and of a purpose in things and of, you know, how obviously we, we work with texts, we work with language, so we love the idea that that's at the centre of everything, that that's the one real thing, don't we? What if it wasn't? What if it was just a sort of epiphenomenon? We need to grapple with the sort of post-humanism that a lot of science is engaging with. That, that human-centric focus that we have in the humanities can really distort the natural world. It's not just after humans, it's after humanism. Mm, yeah, and I think that you can take that post-humanist attitude in two different directions. You can say, okay, so we imagine humans as being sort of like the sole agents on the earth, but really we can find all of these sort of mechanistic processes behind what we think of as being agential action. Or you can turn things around and you can say, look at, you know, like these non-human life forms, which we think of in mechanistic terms, which actually have a lot of the things that we think are exclusively human, that are, that are engaged in sort of interpreting. And I think that kind of, you can look at the world as a big machine, or you can look at it as uh, all of these interpreters and, and meaning makers, and it's sort of, neither of them is really ultimately right or wrong it's, it's different ideologies if you like isn't it it's different different choices that we're making about how how we want to imagine it i think you know the image of the machine is an interesting one because for a long time a machine was the most complex thing people could imagine right mm. all the moving parts whereas something you know the, the simplistic had biological system was not as complex whereas now we perhaps think the reverse yeah i'm really interested in mechanicism and and the meanings of the machine, how it has so much cultural and ideological baggage attached to it. When you think about Carlyle raging at signs of the times against the sort of the way that we have become mechanic, I suppose so. Because we talked about subject specialism earlier in the sciences, mm. um, and you mentioned uh, the post-human, which is obviously another area. One area that, that some of your works might speak to, of course, is animal studies. And I yeah. was wondering how far have you found in your career that the sort of splitting into different denominations, has that been helpful to you? Would you say that animal studies offers you another viable outlet? It's, it's useful to talk, have, talk about animal studies because you can bring together people who are interested in this particular object. Um, but then at the same time, the, the aspects of that object might take you in quite different directions. A lot of the time, we're interested in the same things, but we sort of, we talk as if we're in different fields. But I'm curious though, actually, why animal studies has become so big. And plant studies hasn't acquired quite the same critical mass. You can't cuddle plants in the same way. Oh. I assume it's a cuteness factor. Like that feeling that, I don't, there must be a word for that feeling that you get when you see something really cute and you want to crush it. Cute aggression. Where are the plant fanciers? I don't know though, people get very emotional about plants. Dendrophiles. <laughs> How important is it to you to speak to a wider audience than just those who are already within universities? Very important, yeah, and I think it's not so hard to do as people sometimes think. I, I'm, I'm very much about trying to avoid jargon and trying to kind of to find ways of, of explaining it in an accessible way. I mean, of course, some things are complex, so you need more words to explain them, and sometimes you need to have read and studied other things so that you can understand it, because it's, it's making all of these references to other things. But I think that in the humanities, a lot of the time, the sort of the knowledge that we're working with, it's kind of connected in a horizontal way rather than the vertical 
analytical model that you tend to have in a lot of sciences where you have to understand A, B, and C before you can understand D. Something similar happens in what we're dealing with. Like when I've tried to teach classes about sort of evolution and literature to students in university who were not really versed in any of the evolutionary science. Or the history of it, yeah. Or they don't really, they kind of, they have a very vague sort of folk culture idea of what evolution is. And I'm trying to point out, no, it's not like that. You know, that's, you're, you're, you're talking about Lamarckian evolution. I'm talking about Darwinian. When I was sort of going off on a rant about this in one class, one of my students said, my, my, my brain is just exploding. What are you talking about? I think that's an important part about communicating research outside and around the academy is to help other people build their competence. Mm. It's not assuming that they have a limited competence and will never get up to speed. It's how do you give people the ability, empower them, I hate the mm. word empowerment in that sense, <laughs> but ensure that they are able to become competent enough to participate in the conversation, even mm. if they, they don't know everything. I think also there's just a question of sort of interest as well, thinking if somebody was talking, telling you about what they did and you, you have absolutely no prior knowledge of it, maybe you haven't had much desire to study it in great depth. Something I've learned from doing broadcasting is a lot of the time it's, it's not about giving a lecture, it's about telling a story. It's about finding something that, that will create some sort of provocation you know, um, and sometimes the best way to do that is to tell someone in a very sort of superficial way what you're looking at, and then they react and say, oh, so it's like this, is it? And then you say, well, actually, it's uh, <laughs> something, you know, like, it doesn't work like that. That way you can have a mutual discovery, right? Mm. So it's not about talking down to somebody. It's no. about learning together. I suppose, like, in the humanities, what we do is we're not just transmitting knowledge in a sort of solid form. We're getting people to think in ways that they didn't think before, and we're taking things that they they thought that particular area was fairly straightforward and we're showing that it's more complicated than they thought it was. A lot of it is about making people less certain and breaking down their kind of their rather generalized views of things, which we always have ourselves. Until you learn about something, you realize, oh God, I've been, you know, I've been making these ridiculous generalizations which just are not true. It's kind of, it's, it's a subtle... Digestive um, process, perhaps. Digestive process, yeah. Thank okay. you, Will. Thank you. So this is an extract from an article by Grant Allen in the Cornhill magazine in 1887 called Strictly Incog, and it's explaining to the general reader how protective mimicry and um, organic camouflage work. Take that predaceous mantis which exactly imitates the white ants, and mixing with them like one of their own horde, quietly devours a stray fat termite or so from time to time as occasion offers. Here we must suppose that the ancestral mantis happened to be somewhat paler and smaller than most of its fellow tribesmen, and so at times managed unobserved to mingle with the white ants, especially in the shade or under a dusky sky, much to the advantage of its own appetite. But the termites would soon begin to observe the visits of their suspicious friend, and to note their coincidence with the frequent mysterious disappearance of a fellow townswoman, evaporated into space like the missing young women in neat cloth jackets who periodically vanish from the London suburbs. In proportion as their reasonable suspicions increased, the termites would carefully avoid all doubtful-looking mantises. But, at the same time, they would only succeed in making the mantises which survived their inquisition grow more and more closely to resemble the termite pattern in all particulars. The more cunning you get your detectives, the more cunning do the thieves become to outwit them. Nothing could more beautifully prove the noble superiority of the human intellect 
than the fact that while our grouse are russet brown to suit the bracken and heather, and our caterpillars green to suit the lettuce and cabbage leaves, our British soldier should be wisely coated in brilliant scarlet to form an effective mark for the rifles of an enemy. Red is the easiest of all colours at which to aim from a great distance, and its selection by authority for the uniform of unfortunate Tommy Atkins reminds me of nothing so much as Mr McClellan's exquisite suggestion that the peculiar brilliancy of the Indian River Carps makes them serve as a better mark for kingfishers, terns and other birds, which are destined to keep the number of these fishes in check. The idea of Providence and the house guards conspiring to render any creature an easier target for the attack of enemies is worthy of the decadent school of natural history and cannot for a moment be dispassionately considered by a judicious critic. Nowadays we all know that the carp are decked in crimson and blue to please their partners and that soldiers are dressed in brilliant red to please the aesthetic authorities who command them from a distance. We've come to that special moment in the episode where it is time for some final words. Panache. Curtailed. And those are our final words. Thanks for joining us for the fourth of our Lit Side podcasts. We hope you'll join us next time. And if you like what you've heard and want to hear more, or if you want to join in on the conversation, please follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at LitSidePod. Don't forget to tweet using the hashtag LitSciPod. You can even email us at LitSciPod at gmail.com. You'll be able to find a full list of the sources we've mentioned today in our episode description. LitSciPod is available across all podcasting platforms. Just don't accidentally run into a tree while listening. Ouch!